Thanks, Dan and our team. Hey, our children, you can slide back to Redemption Kids. We've got our volunteers in the back back there. And uh, if you're new with us and you haven't checked in your child, you can just follow our team right on back. We'll show you and, and how to get your child connected up. Well, hey, uh, my name is John Chastine. I was one of the pastors here at Redemption Church, and I'm, I'm glad and honored and humbled to be able to bring God's Word to you today. So let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. And if you have one of the Bibles that we provide, that's page 775. Today, we're going to be continuing our sermon series through Jonah called God City. And today we're going to be seeing how God is a God of second chances. Have you ever wanted a do-over in life? Have you ever just said, you know what, I, I wish that I could just rewind the clock, maybe just erase something from the whiteboard of your life and just, and just have another shot at it? Um, man, we're going to see today is an example of God giving Jonah a second chance. But I'll share one with you. One, um, and and there's many, as I think about do-overs or second chances in life. One of those relates to my wife, whom the Lord has graciously given to me. You see, I went to college at Appalachian State uh, University. It's in Boone, North Carolina, um, up in the mountains in western North Carolina. We met there our freshman year, and that's when we started dating. We met through Crusade um, Crew, great campus ministry, and then we were connected with a similar local church. Hey, hey, that's just a little hint here, guys and gals, for dating. You know, if you're looking for just a godly man or woman, go hang out around where Christians are, right? So get involved in the campus organization. A local church is a great place. That's not your primary motivation, but it's not a bad place to start. Um, but we met through Crusade. We dated for a month. And then I dropped these words on her. Honey, I just want to be friends. Lamo, yes. Like, bring it. Come on. I mean, it, guys, don't do that. Like, yes. Booze are fine. It, it was bad. Like, it's like the easy way without like confronting, but like to, hey, I, man, we weren't friends. Like, we both went our separate ways. And so I did my own thing, she did her own thing, and there was no animosity there. It was just, man, we were both young and immature, and um, I didn't want to be in a relationship. Um, And so what happened was about two years later, I came crawling back. Um, Lee might tell this story a little bit differently, Um, but no, it was two years later, I came back, and it was basically, you know what? Give me a second shot at this thing. I'm a different person. You're a different person. And by God's grace, um, she jumped in. And, uh, and so we initiated a relationship and dated for nine months. We're engaged for nine months and then got married. And, you know, voila, 13 plus years later, here we are. Um, and I would say this. She not only gave me a second chance, she's given me like 30, 40, a couple like probably thousand chances and continues to display to me God's mercy and God's kindness um, in, in my life. So I'm so grateful, so thankful for her. You can probably, you're probably thinking too, hey, you know what? Here's some se- second chances I'm grateful for, some second chances that I wish I had. Let's go to the text here. We see here when we turn to the text that God has given Jonah 
a second chance. So before we read chapter three, let me just, let me bring us all up to speed. In chapter one, God calls Jonah and he says, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to tell them about their evil and call them to repentance. And so what does Jonah do? Well, the map shows that instead of going to Nineveh, he heads to Tarshish, right? Great decision. He flees from the presence of God, but God pursues him. God chases after him, and uh, man, he gets on a ship with some pagan sailors. God sends a storm. He tells these guys, you gotta, ought to toss me in the sea to save your own life. They toss him into the sea, and thinking that his life is over, God is not done with his plans for Jonah or Nineveh. You see, the mission of God can't be manipulated. God's mission will be fulfilled. And so what God does is he sends a large fish who swallows Jonah. And last week we saw in Jonah chapter 2, in the midst of his despair, he cried out to God in prayer. I got a little rapping going right there, T. You know, you, you guys feel that rhyme that T was rolling with us last week. So we got that despair. He cries out to God. And, and at the end of that, we see here in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, but I with the voice of thanksgiving would sacrifice, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's as if here there's a shift in Jonah that we're heading to the last, the last few chapters here with this acknowledgement. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And look what happens in verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah upon the ground upon the dry land. So let me just show you. Here's where we've been. You'll see we started in chapter one with Jonah's commissioning and flight. And then we had Jonah and the pagan sailors and then Jonah's grateful prayer. What we're going to see in chapter three is almost a mirror image of that. It's deja vu. It's the same thing happening again. So look here with me. Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, which said, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? Maybe God will turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Here's what we see here. 
we see basically a mere copy of those first few chapters. So I've got a little diagram just so you can track and see the big picture of what's going on. Here, going back to the letter A, we see Jonah's recommissioning and compliance. Instead of fleeing to Tarshish, now he's going. Then we see instead of Jonah with the pagan sailors, now Jonah with the pagan Ninevites. But then we're going to get to this next week, but, but we've got to jump there in order to understand briefly what's going on in chapter 3. What we're going to see next week is Jonah's angry prayer. And then finally, we're going to conclude with Jonah's lesson about compassion. Why do I jump ahead? Because here's why. It seems as if we don't go to chapter 4 and you just read chapter 3. You may think, all right, Jonah's really got it all together. We got complete transformation, but we go to chapter 4 and he's angry at the Ninevites from repenting, which means he still hasn't learned his lesson. And so we're going to read chapter 3 in light of what's still to come in chapter 4. And here's the point of the text and the point of the sermon today. It's this. Repent, confident in God's boundless mercy, and extend God's boundless mercy to others. Those two words, repent and extend. Because God is boundless in his mercy, it should motivate us to repent. And yet at the same time, it should guide us to hold that same offer out to many of those that are around us. The book of Jonah, here's what it's about. It's about the boundless compassion of God, not just for Jonah or for Israel, but for the world. And God wants Jonah to get that. And it's a lesson that he wants us to get today. And so before we jump into these two truths, let me just ask you a question. You don't have to answer out loud. As you peer into your heart, go into all the chambers, all the rooms there. Does your heart more reflect that of Jonah or that of God? Are you stingy with the compassion and mercy of God? Are you extending that to the nations? That's where we're headed today. Let's look at our first truth today. And, and just building off of that main point, it's this. Extend the boundless mercy you have received. Go back to verses 1 through 3 here. Again, as I've already mentioned, 3, 1 through 3a, man, is mirroring verses chapter 1, verses one and two. I mean, in your Bibles, you could just scroll or, or look back and forth. They're very similar. God's calling Jonah again for the second time to go to Nineveh. The only difference or the main difference we see, if you go back to chapter one, it says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come before me. Now in chapter three, what's highlighted, he says, go out, call out against it the message that I tell you. And here's the point. When we go out and engage in God's mission, we don't get determined what we say. We speak what he tells us to speak. So he's, hey, Jonah, you're not going to go out and speak your word. Hey, you're just my mouthpiece. I'll tell you what to say. You say, you say my words, and that's what I want you to do here. So we see that God is sending him out to say the message that he has for it. But second, the other main difference, which is just obvious, is Jonah's response. In chapter 1, he flees the presence of God. In chapter 3 here, he actually arises and goes. So has Jonah had a complete 
change of heart? I mean, we ought to at least ask and jump in to this question a little bit. Jump ahead to chapter 4. I know I've given you a little taste here. Let me just read through chapter 4, verses 1 through 4 real quick. At the very end of Nineveh repenting in chapter 3, chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well? to be angry. You see, here's what's happened. What can we conclude here? Jonah's compliance is definitely a step forward from chapter one. You know, as we start off chapter three in this deja vu, we're wondering, is this just going to be a vicious cycle of sin where Jonah heads down the same path that he chose in the first chapter, or are we going to see some steps ahead in this spiritual journey? We do see Jonah taking some steps, but what we see is those seem to be very, inf- very superficial and have not really jumped and, and are flowing from a change of heart. The reality is his attitude fundamentally still hasn't changed. So let me just press in here with you guys for a second. God is not after mere external obedience to his plans. Jonah rose and went to Nineveh and yet was still filled with anger in his heart. Man, I'll never forget an illustration that my college minister shared with me at Appalachian State University. Um, Man, so thankful um, for the the men and and women who invested in, in mine and Lee's lives Um, And and there's probably a few versions of this illustration. I'm just going to make it pertinent to our lives. Let's imagine this afternoon, it's 95 degrees. You're like, you know what? I'm heading to Boston Common and we're heading to the Frog Pond. I don't even know if it's open yet. Maybe it is. Um, But you're just wanting to get to some water and you're going to throw the kids in the water. So you get on the tee at Wellington. You're heading downtown. Now, what do you do? You get on the tee and if you've got five kids like I do right now, like, you're worried to get them seated because as soon as that tea takes off, if you're not seated, what's happening? You falling. I'm just saying, I'm going to be catching you. Like, you're going to be falling. Here's the deal. My kids, they get on the tea, and it's the game. You, you guys know what I'm talking about. I can do this. I don't need to hold on. And so we're telling our kids, no, seriously, like we're not playing that game right now. You need to sit down. And here's the illustration. It's as if they sit down and they turn to me and they say this. Dad? I'm sitting down on the outside, but on the inside, I'm standing up. The gist, you guys get it. Externally, Jonah's going to Nineveh, and he's sharing the message, but on the inside, there has not been complete heart transformation. Here's another cool point, guys. As I'm just reflecting on this text, God can still use the twisted attempts of our life for his kingdom purposes. Nineveh still repents, and Jonah is still angry in his heart. They don't repent because 
Jonah's got it all together. They repent because God's word is powerful and Jonah spoke God's word. But as, man, Jonah's still twisted and, and he's still getting it together. So here, here's the deal. We often think, man, if I'm gonna do great things for God, I'm gonna be a mouthpiece for God. Look, but man, I don't have it together. He can still use you. Okay? It's not like I got to get it all figured out and get all the junk out of my life and then I'll be at a point where I can really start telling people about Jesus. He, he can use our feeble attempts. And that's what we see here with Jonah. So let me ask you this. Why does God give Jonah a second chance? He didn't have to. Literally, he, he could have left Jonah drowning in the sea. And you read through the Bible, everybody doesn't get a second chance. You go read through the prophets, and oftentimes they were held to a higher standard. God's not done with Jonah. Two things. One, he's wanting to teach Jonah that he cannot manipulate the mercy of God or the mission of God. Jonah says, all right, yeah, all right, you want me to go? I'll just go die before I tell those people what you want me to tell them. Take that, God. Jonah is not in control. God is sovereign. And so that's one. Second, God's wanting to cultivate mercy and compassion in his heart. And here's what's ironic about Jonah. Who are the people hearing and responding to the word of God in this book? Pagans. You go back to chapter one, it's the sailors who are listening, responding, and worshiping God. Who in chapter three? I mean, the reality is, is the Ninevites look much better than Jonah in chapter three. They're repenting, and it seems to me more than just superficial, like they're turning from their evil ways. So the irony for Jonah in this book for Israel is that they know that God is compassionate and yet they don't repent of their sin. And the, the pagans who don't know about the compassion of God are hearing and responding. And so it's an indictment on Jonah and Israel and us today as we reflect on the mercy of God. So let me just flesh out a, a few implications here for you today. The point, extend the boundless mercy you have received. If you have received the boundless mercy of God, why would you not want to extend that to others? If God has blessed you with the knowledge of salvation, why would you not want to be a blessing? Like Abraham I'm going to bless those who bless you and those who curse, I'm going to curse. But in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. You're blessed to be a blessing. God's blessing is not supposed to stop with you. It's to flow through you. So why did God send Jonah to Nineveh? Was it just to preach judgment? I would argue that God sent Jonah to preach judgment, but with the hope that they would repent. Because God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Here's the deal. Jonah was grateful for his own deliverance, but resentful of the potential inclusion of the nations. 
He failed to see that God's mercy to him was no different than God's mercy to the nations. Many of you guys, some of you have been asked today, uh, I preached a few, a, little, a few weeks back about Medford Little League and coaching the Orioles. Just so you'll know, we're in the round one of the playoffs. If I don't win tomorrow, the season's over. So that's just where I'm at right now. But, you know, playing baseball, one of the things that I've been grateful for this year is that there's actually a fence. Because if it weren't for the fence, these balls, some of these balls that these, I mean, they've been smoking them. Some of these have just been ripped. I mean, it's crazy. Some of these 9 and 10, 11-year-olds are just killing this ball. They had a, man, they're going for miles. The fence keeps it in the park and gives my kids a chance to get the ball, get it in, and get them out, or at least stop the bleeding. There's no fence with the mercy of God. God is rich in mercy. Have you put a fence up on the mercy of God in your life? Jonah had, and he was teaching them it is boundless. It is rich, infinite, eternal, and it's for the world. So we extend that to the nations. But the second truth that I want us to see here is this that we should repent confident in God's boundless mercy. Picking back up here in verse 3, we see here it says, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Now what's going to happen in verses 3 through 10 is this is going to parallel We already saw the parallel through the first few verses of chapter 1. This is going to parallel the rest of chapter 1 through the beginning of, uh, of chapter 2. You see, Jonah speaks to the sailors. Now he's speaking to the Ninevites. The Gentiles, the sailors respond favorably both times. The sailors hear and respond. The Ninevites hear and respond. And in both instances, God relents from the wrath and judgment and disaster that was coming. He, he, the storm that was going to destroy the boat ceases and the disaster that he promised that Nineveh would be overthrown is relented from. And so again, we've got this parallelism and in, in, in going back and forth in what God is trying to teach us here. Why the repetition? Again, God's working a lesson in Jonah and Israel's life. And here's the deal. It's not just for Israel. It's for the nations. And here's the deal. Anyone who has received his mercy, as one commentator notes, is in no position to begrudge its extension to others. And that's what's going on. Jonah wants God's mercy, but he's begrudging extending it to Nineveh. And so let's go on here. Here's how we're going to break this down. We're going to look at Jonah's message of judgment. We're going to see the people's repentance And then finally, we're going to see God's relenting and compassion and mercy. So let's look here. Jonah's message of judgment. We see here, again, the repetition. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. If we jump to chapter 4, we see there's at least 120,000 people here in the city. But you'll also note there's a footnote. If you'll see your footnote in the Bible, um, footnote 1 in mine says Hebrew a great city 
to God. So we got a couple things going on here. One, highlighting that it's an exceedingly great city simply means this. The greatness of the city, the greatness of the people, if disaster comes, what's that mean? It's cataclysmic. So highlighting the greatness of the city highlights the, man, look at the the potential of disaster that may come upon them. But something else that may be going on, if, if this other reading here is also in play, where it says a great city to God, is that the author may be highlighting here that this is God's city. And it's a reference to God's sovereignty. Here's the deal. And if that's the case, the point is God's mercy is as broad as his sovereignty. And so if this is God's city, his mercy ought to extend to that city. So we continue. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. It was a three days journey and breath, and Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. It would have taken roughly three days to journey the city, and he goes a day's journey, which is just highlighting it. It doesn't seem that, I don't even think Jonah got to the middle of the city, and he didn't go all the way through the city before he started preaching. So he went a day's journey, and it says he started preaching, and this is what he shared, and he called out, Yet, 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You guys tell me, is that the best sermon you've ever heard? I mean, it seems a little underwhelming, at least what's reported to us. My guess is there were probably other words that he shared, but, but this is what's been chosen to highlight here. So let me say that here's why this seems underwhelming. There's no, thus says the Lord. You see this often in the Old Testament. Hey, I'm sharing with you a word of God. There's no, hey, this is what God said. Second, there's no indication of the grounds for judgment. Whereas in chapter one, go call on it for the evil. Here she said, hey, hey, check it out. 40 days and Nineveh is gonna be overthrown. And then third, here's why this seems underwhelming. Did Jonah tell them how they could avert God's wrath? Now, maybe he did, but it's not listed here. And so the way Jonah is being even presented here is that, man, God's about to do a great work, but Jonah's message seems to be underwhelming, and he may not have actually repeated it exactly as he received it. Let's break it down here. What does he say first? He says, yet 40 days. Now, maybe, maybe Nineveh wouldn't have got the background, but as Israel is reading through Jonah, they surely got it. I mean, 40 days is a significant, this is significant in the Old Testament. The very first instance, we could go back to the flood narrative in Genesis chapter 6 through 9, right? In the flood narrative, why might that be a reference here? Well, that was an example of God's judgment, which had a universal scope, and it was before Israel was even formed. So 
echoing back here is, hey, maybe God is even speaking to Jonah through these words also. Hey, hey, Jonah, um, I was, I gave my judgment um, with Noah in Genesis chapter six, and, and Israel hadn't been formed yet. My judgment is universal. Um, but another reference is to Moses' intercession for Israel after they sinned with the golden calf. In that instance, it says that Moses was prostrate before the Lord for 40 entire days and received neither food nor water. So what's going on here? I think potentially what's going on is, is Jonah implicitly in this message is highlighting there's two possible outcomes. What was the outcome with the flood? Destruction. What was the outcome with Moses' intercession? God was merciful. Now to go with that, he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be over, shall be overthrown. This overthrown language is recalling the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Who, uh, another cities that, that were overthrown and the destruction and judgment that God heaped on them because of their extreme wickedness. And so let me share this. Like, if you were to go do a theological study, oftentimes uh, people talk about that, we talk about, hey, God doesn't change. He is immutable. And some would say, okay, well, he said there was destruction that was going to come, but destruction didn't come. Did God change? Well, no, God didn't change because implied in this was if you repent and there's a different set of circumstances, well, then I'm going to respond differently to that. Check this out in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 and 8. I think we've got it on the screen here. It says this, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I've spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. So here's the deal. Jonah's preached and their response is contingent and God's mercy is available. What do we see here? Let's go on verse five. Back in Jonah chapter 3, it says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to, to the least of them. Here's the deal. In spite of Jonah's perceived shortcomings in his proclamation and even his own twisted heart, the effects were immediate and impressive. Guys, this is a citywide response to the preaching from the greatest of them to the least of them. It said they believe God. They called for a fast. That believe God language, in my mind, is echoing again back to Genesis where who else believed God? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So when we respond, Bond, at the heart of our response to God, it starts with a belief that God will do what he says he will do. If we repent, 
There's confidence that there is mercy and compassion and forgiveness. If we don't repent, it's a belief that judgment and destruction is going to come. So they believe God, the greatest of them to the least of them, but it doesn't stop there. I love this. In verse 6, it says, it goes beyond them. The word reached the king. Now, the assumption here, it doesn't say, I mean, Jonah basically disappears. After those words, we don't see him in the rest of chapter 3. So the assumption here is, how did the king hear about it? Well, I'm guessing that he heard about it through his people. As they heard and responded, the king heard. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And what did he do? He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. I love this. Let us call out mightily to God. And here's the deal. This wasn't just superficial. Like, Sackcloth, what sackcloth is? Sackcloth was um, a thick cloth usually made from goats here. It was worn to symbolize the rejection of earthly comforts and pleasures. And to sit in ashes, just like, man, we are just humbling ourselves. We are rejecting ourselves. It wasn't just the superficial. Like, you can do that. Like, Jonah can go to Nineveh and not change his heart. You can also do that. But what does the king say? It went beyond that. We're going to call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way. Hey, let me define repentance for you. Because I've used this word, repent. You, you may be new to church, Jesus, Christian. Man, what, what is that word? Here's what I want you to do. I've got two walls on each side of me right here. I want you to imagine that this wall is the wall of a life of pursuit that is not towards God, but towards sin. I, I'm not going toward God, towards God's mark. I'm choosing my own way. I'm king. Now, now, this pathway can be a couple different pathways. One, this pathway can be an evil, destructive pathway where you're harming yourself and harming others. But this pathway can also be a good pathway. What I mean by good, there may even be a hint of spirituality, of religion. I may even dabble and read my Bible a little bit or go to church every once in a while. But you can do all of those things and still yourself be at the center of those pursuits. Now here's what repentance means. Repentance means that you are heading towards sin and away from God and you turn and this wall represents everything that involves with following Jesus and eternal life. This is where there's forgiveness of sins. And so to turn and to follow Jesus. Now here's the deal about repentance. And this is why you got to get it. Repentance, as Stephen Smallman in his book, The Walk, he says this, the life of being a, a disciple is never presented as adding Jesus to the life I'm already living, but turning to Jesus to walk a new path. You guys follow me? 
So if you're, you're here, you're exploring Jesus, we're not telling you keep going down that path and just add a little Jesus and you'll be okay. No, we're telling you this is the pathway to destruction, the same pathway that if Nineveh heads down, they will be destroyed. The message of the gospel is if you continue in your sin, you will face destruction. There will be judgment. But the good news and compassion of God says, I've sent my son. He died for that wall, for that sin. If you will turn, no, not add, turn from your sin and to him and follow him, you will be saved. And you can do that right now by calling upon Jesus. Confess your sin. God, forgive me for being my king. I'm turning, and you're now my king. Jesus is Lord. I'm laying down my life. Jesus, you're going to come and reign, and I'm not adding you. I'm, I'm, I'm turning from everything, and you're everything. You express that in God to prayer, and God will save you. That's repentance. And here's what repentance is based upon. Do you see what the king says in verse 9? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Here's the deal. Jonah has already affirmed, which we read in chapter 4, he knew God was gracious and merciful and slow to anger. But you know who didn't know that? The, the pagan sailors and the pagan Ninevites did not have that assurance. So that leads us to verse 10, which is great. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God is merciful and relents. Hey guys, here's the deal. When people repent, God is compassionate and merciful to relent and forgive. Notice what caught God's eye. He didn't see their sackcloth and ashes. What did he see? When he saw how they turned from their evil way, it's not just, look, God's just not looking for you to do a few superficial Christian churchy things. He's looking for you to turn to him. That's what he's looking for. That's a complete change of your life. And here's what's beautiful about verse 10. We see the holiness of God and the kindness and mercy and grace and compassion of the God on display here. Look, because God is holy, here's the deal. He must punish all sin. He will not tolerate the wickedness of the pagan sailors or of the Ninevites or even the disobedience of Jonah. So you ask, if God is holy and, and he must punish all sin, how does he overlook their sin? Hey, let me share this with you. In Romans chapter 3, many of you know this as a part of the Romans road. 
I mean, one of the key verses we, as a kid, that I was shared with, it, it starts this way, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and, and you need to believe this. Like, all, me, you, we've all fallen short. We are justified. We, we are declared right. We're in a courtroom and God, God says, you're not guilty. You, that happens by grace as a gift. You don't earn that. It's through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus died for our sin. It says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Real simple. Propitiation simply means that Jesus exhausted the wrath of God. Quick analogy. All that sin in the Old Testament, imagine a cup. And the cup, all those sins, it's the cup of God's wrath. Sometimes we see God's wrath and judgment is actually carried out. But a lot of times he overlooks and he stores up that wrath. But the reality is somebody is going to pay. Either you're going to pay or when it says Jesus was put forward as a propitiation, that means on the cross he drank every last drop of the cup of God's wrath. He exhausted the wrath of God. That, so, and then it continues here. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. He forgave sins in the Old Testament because he was looking forward to the day where his son would shed his blood and drink every last drop of those sins, including yours and mine. And so when we turn to Jesus, all of those sins that we've been storing up, Jesus drank them. You're free. You're forgiven. You have been granted life because of Jesus. That is the goodness of the gospel that I'm pleading with you today to respond to. So God is holy, but God is also merciful, and he desires to forgive God's eye is turned towards and he responds to those who cry out to him for mercy. His ear turns to those who respond in humble repentance and earnest prayer. You see, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Earlier in Romans 2, we would have read this. Or do you presume on the riches of of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. If you are here today and you are still breathing, the very fact that you're still alive is that God is being patient with you, that you would repent and come to him. Would you come to him today? in repentance and faith. You say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. We, we don't move past repentance and faith. It's lifestyle, repentance faith. I'm turning from my sin. What God says is not honoring to him, and I'm following him with my life. And so the point of our sermon I just shared with you, repent, confident in God's boundless mercy, and accept. God's boundless mercy to others.
Would you pray with me? God, give me your heart. Help me to hate my sin the way you hate sin. Help me to repent. Help me to extend your boundless mercy without borders to those around me. God, you have your way in our lives. Save us. Renew us. Relent. And God, help us to extend this compassion to many in greater Boston, in New York City, in India, and to the nations who do not have that assurance that we have. God, help us not to begrudge your generosity or be stingy, but work that in us, I pray in Christ's name.